Our second reading from this morning is from James, the first chapter, verses 17 through 27. And if you'd like to follow along, they're printed in the middle of your bulletin insert. Every generous act of giving, with every perfect gift, is from above, coming down from the creator of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of God's own purpose, the Holy One gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would become a kind of first fruits of God's creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. For your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and, on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues, but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this to care for orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the word. Here ends our reading. I was in unexpected bliss this week. I climbed the steps to the SFTS library, meandered through the dusty stacks, and without much care, decided on a forgotten book by Marcia Falk titled Love Lyrics from the Bible, a translation and literary study of the Song of Songs. It was thin enough. Hopefully, it would get straight to the point. It had pages that were falling out, a sign of good age. And it had Hebrew alongside the translated English reminding me of good scholarship and of a Jewish poet I liked. A few days passed, and I sat down to read this translator's insights in between loads of laundry. Then I read these words. Oh, for your kiss, for your love more enticing than wine, for your scent and sweet name, for all this they love you. Take me away to your room, like a king to his rooms. We'll rejoice there with wine. No wonder they love you. I couldn't help but laugh. 
My eyes widened as I continued through Marcia's arrangement of the song as 31 distinct love poems. One after another aroused shock and mischievous delight. What bold predecessors we had. The second poem begins just as confidently. Yes, I am black and radiant, O oh city woman watching me, as black as Kadar's goat hair tents or Solomon's fine tapestries. Will you disrobe me with your stares? The eyes of many morning suns have pierced my skin, and now I shine, black as the light before dawn. And I have faced the angry glare of others, even my mother's sons, who sent me out to watch their vines while I neglected all my own. The poems touch on love in all of its complexity. Poems of the passion of playful adolescence. Poems of tender reverence. Poems of love discovered for oneself. There is room for indignation and defiance toward those who would harm love. There are dreams and fantasies of the beloved, memories of love lost. And as with our reading from this morning, secret love, with the beckoning of one lover to another, that the more cautious one might come away and, as Marcia puts it, mate like the nightingales do in spring. Marcia observes the emotional fabric of the song is not wholly joyful, but sometimes interwoven with tensions and struggle. Taken as a whole, she notes, the song expresses the paradoxes of love in the world, conflict which intensifies passion, painful separation which heightens the pleasure of union, bonding which gives the individual courage to stand alone. The most significant feature common to these poems is the sense of intimacy, of reciprocity of emotion that they express. While many have been left embarrassed by the song's descriptions of lovemaking and of the body parts of lovers, lips like lilies, sweet and wet with dew, thighs, two spinning jewels, hips, a bowl of nectar, brimming full. Marcia reminds those who would read her pages that the love portrayed in the song is of mutual adoration. Female voices, male voices, lovers equally share their joy and desire in one another with passion and reverence. It's love that honors the beloved in an I-thou relationship, an image of love that we hope for, that touches the sacred. Reading the poems, remnants of love known by our ancient progenitors, we are reminded of the depth of our own experiences of love that we've known. Stolen moments with another, 
awakening us to the bliss, to the excitement of being together, reminded of relationships that provided us with courage to confront the world, knowing the loss of when the beloved is no longer near, the desire of being reunited, and the dreaming of them that has a life of its own, reminded of the truth that Marcia recognized, that love does not conquer death, but neither is it conquered by it. Love blazes despite all attempts to extinguish it. Thankfully, our predecessors didn't erase these poems from our book and have asked us to read them at least once a year from the pulpit. For they remind us of honoring the depth of our being, our wholeness witnessed, and of being able to witness that in another. This dance of love also emerges in other parts of our lives, in our work, in the places and things with which we spend our time, whether that's a treasured walking path or Robin's playing, or an artwork in progress, or as in Marcia's case, words. Love honoring and giving witness to the depth of the other is there. Reading Marcia speak of the translation process, I was struck by a sense of intimacy, a sense of being in love, of being in relationship present in her words. She writes, Having departed from a text by deciding to translate it, by envisioning its shape and sound in a language not its own, the translator's next move is to move toward the text again into its subtleties and details, its flaws, peculiarities, and perfections. The enveloping mists are lifted, the relationship comes down to earth. It will not do to admire at a distance anymore. One must see the rocks and ravines as well as the contours of the mountains. But then, once intimacy is established, the translator leaves again, taking another step away from the text, back into the self, to begin the utterance that will be the new work. For the translation, too, must have a life, one that breathes to its own rhythms. It cannot exist without its own nourishing atmosphere. Thus, the process of translation is a to-and-fro voyage toward and away from the shores of the text until, finally, there is new land on which to disembark. Her relationship to the text is spoken of as though she is in relationship with the beloved, an extension of her sense of care, her sense of being in the world, her way of living an honorable life, a life of wholeness. In learning about James, I began to 
gain a glimpse of someone in search of living honorably. In his attempt to do that, he pulled from the recognized wisdom around him. So the letter of James is a snapshot of that attempt, a collection of sayings from not only the writer's religious tradition, but from the secular world of which he is a part. From Hellenistic philosophy, from the Jewish wisdom tradition, from interpretations of Israel's history. The three-part admonition, for example, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, is likely from the wisdom tradition which admonishes students to listen to their wisdom teachers, to recall the, reg the regret that follows when too hasty with words, and the potential for harm, the Didache says, the potential result in murder that comes from acting out of anger. Whether the writer of James understood the full context of the sayings he collected or assumed those hearing it would know of that context is unknown. Because he doesn't explain them, I imagine him to be like many of us, retaining pieces of lectures, books, news stories, reflections, keeping catchphrases to remind him of glimmers of insight. Years later, the details of the lectures now elude, at least us. The catchphrases no longer retain the same punch, and we are left trying to squeeze out more depth of meaning. Clarity must be in there. I suppose those of us who turn to James for understanding share in common with him the practice of pulling from recognized, even if not always helpful, wisdom around us in search of living an honorable life, a life of wholeness. The love poems remind us of the depth of experience we have known, the wisdom perhaps long forgotten, a few pages loose, yet that still resides within us, gained by living, by simply being human, falling in love and rising once more. They remind us of honoring the depth of our being, our wholeness witnessed, and being able to witness that in another, like drinking from a holy stream and recognizing home. In sandy earth or deep in valley soil, I grow a wildflower thriving on your love. Narcissus in the brambles, brightest flower, I choose you for, from all others for my love. Sweet fruit tree growing wild within the thickets, I blossom in your shade and taste your love.